0: Taking a little detour this Sunday, we've been looking at Thanksgiving. We'll continue to do that, Lord willing, over future weeks. As some of you know, as I announced last week, I've got to—I will uh, be speaking at a, a three-day seminar in Atlanta. Uh, if you think about it, uh, Wednesday morning I'm first up. It's either eight o'clock or nine o'clock. I'm not sure. But uh, I've uh, the, the the theme of this particular conference is spiritual warfare. And having spoken on some of these things in recent weeks and months, I've taken two elements of two series and I've melted them together and come up with a sermon. And today you are going to be my rehearsal. Or you might want to call yourselves guinea pigs. But I'm going to run it by you and, and see if you it makes sense to y'all. Some of it will be repetition, some of it will be maybe a little bit new in a way you hadn't thought about it before. But Lord willing, I'd like to uh, do that with you this morning. Uh, there's two <clears throat> things that we've been through uh, in recent times. Uh, for the better part of the summer and in the, the good part of the fall, we were going through the book of Ephesians. And at the very end of Ephesians, from chapter 6, verse 10 to about verse 18, it was talking about the armor of God. If you remember in that particular passage... I stressed a couple things. This happened last week too, okay? I stressed that we needed to put on the whole armor of God. Most people, when they read that, they think of it as three pieces, or I'm sorry, seven pieces of armor we have to put on. I'm kind of tempted to add an eighth and make the eighth watching I think that's probably just as important. So you can call it 7.5, however you want to do that. But when I look at this passage, what I tried to stress is the whole armor of God. It doesn't do any good if we leave a couple pieces off. Amen? And then what happens is, is we went down there and we looked at those seven pieces, eight if you'll give me some liberty there, but we looked at those things and we found out that there's truth, righteousness, preparation of the gospel, faith, salvation, Uh, the Word of God, and prayer, and then watch. Well, in looking at those pieces, I took that just a little bit different, if you remember when we were looking at at, at, and going through Ephesians. Having gone through that entire book, what I tried to do was I asked this question, I jumped forward one generation in Revelations 2, 1 through 5, And I looked at the church of Ephesus one generation later, and I asked y'all the question, I says, what piece of armor does it appear they left off? Do you remember that sermon? A couple people at least nod or pretend to nod, okay? And I asked that question, and we went through. And looking at that particular passage, we found out that this was a very strong church doctrinally. They had truth down. They had salvation down. They They did. Doctrinally, they were pure. Some people came with false doctrine and they identified it. And, and they were very diligent. They persevered. They worked real hard. They worked uh, continuously. They had that fruit. But as we read, they did have a weakness and, and Jesus says, thou hast left thy, or thy first love. This is, this is my speculation. My speculation, they got into legalism. Legalism. They were working very hard to lead a very holy life and it appears, now again, it's really hard to diagnose a whole church with just five verses of scripture. you got to be there and do that. But if I was a doctor and these are the three areas I would filter out into. The first was, is when you become a legalist and you become to the letter of the law, what happens is you start thinking that breastplate is your righteousness and not Jesus' righteousness. My friends, that is an inferior piece of armor to go into battle with, your righteousness. In my mind, it's like taking Jesus' righteousness and putting it on backwards, okay? Okay? So that's one thing. If I was the pastor of this church at the reading of Ephesus, I'm sorry, Revelations 2, 1 through 5 to the church of Ephesus, I would probably go pursue that. The other thing is, is when you start becoming very comfortable with your righteousness, all of a sudden you forget that Jesus did some things that you couldn't. And I start questioning your salvation. Maybe your helmet was on upside down. Okay. And then when you get that confident with your means, I guess his prayer life starts to taper off. So, again, as a doctor, as a mechanic, tearing apart a car, I can't tell, is this pastor exactly what's going on? But if I'm going in there trying to delve and figure out what's going on, I'm going to start writing blood tests in these three areas. Yes? Okay. And then what I want to do is I want to marry it to another series we've been doing. And on Sunday nights, we started off doing an evangelistic type outreach And I've done a series of biographies. And I'm about halfway through that. We've done four so far. But in that particular series, we are looking at people's named in Hebrews 11, and we are looking at their lives. And my purpose is, is through story, When I say story, these men's lives, I'm trying to look at their lives to see how they were called of God, how they were used of God, where they obeyed, when they didn't obey. And what we're doing is we're finding out that when we look at that and their lives are so diverse about their failures and their successes, we've come to the conclusion that there's only way all of them could ever get to heaven, and that's by grace. There isn't a scheme of salvation that'll get all eight of these characters to heaven except by grace. What I'd like to do is I want to take three of those characters, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, because they went into battle, and they had great success. Guess what? They were wearing their armor. But one chapter later, guess what happened? They forgot a couple pieces. Okay? Okay. So that's how I'm going to try to marry these two messages together to deliver a message on spiritual warfare. Got it? Okay, so the three fellows we're going to look at in terms of their walks. Now, I know we've been through their lives before, but I'm going to take that jewel and just spin it, look at it from a little different angle, is Gideon. We're going to go right in order. Now, again, if you remember, all three of these fellows are listed in Hebrews 11. Let me read verse 32. And what shall I more say, this is Hebrews 11.32, for the time will come to tell me of Gideon, that's one of the guys we're going to look at, and of Barak, and of Samson, that's one of the guys we're going to look at, and of Jephthah, that's one of the guys we're going to look at, and of David also and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. This is what these men did. Now you're thinking, why? why? What's, what's the purpose of this message? The purpose of this message is for us to take a look at our lives. You know, very rarely are we fully suited up with God's armor. Very rarely are we completely unsuited up with God's armor. I think we spend most of our lives partially suited up. Okay? We don't have all seven, or if you'll give me the liberty, eight. Okay, I'm going to stop talking about seven and eight. All, all, all of it. You understand? We, we typically, and the thing is, is we all have different strengths and weaknesses and the one Deborah forgets to put on is probably different than the one Brandon forgets to put on, which is different than the one James puts on. Amen? So, So we're all different. And as we look at these three characters in Judges, these three Judges that we're going to look at listed in Hebrews 11, we're going to notice that that is exactly the case. Okay. So, 1 Corinthians 11 says this, now all these things happened unto them for in samples, for they are written on, for our admonition upon who the ends of the world are come. In other words, why are we studying these Old Testament characters? And we're doing it because God gave them for us to learn. He didn't give them to us so we could look down our nose and say, I'd never do that. In our self-righteous state, we're going to go right back to where the Ephesians were. Amen? Amen. We're going to think it's our salvation. God gave... That's why I know the Bible's real, because he told about people's faults and their failures and their successes, and their successes was always because of God. He gave no glory to man. That sounds good news. Yeah, because that's the Savior that saved you. Okay? All right. With that being said, let's look at Gideon. Now I've preached these before, so I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but I want to get to high points. I really want to get to chapter 8. Chapter 6 is where God is preparing Gideon. Chapter 7 is where Gideon, he loads up. He's got all that armor on. It's shining and it's sparkling and he's doing great and he has a great victory. And then we get to chapter 8 and all of a sudden, about verse 6, he forgets a piece. And then about verse 10, he forgets another piece. And by the time you get to verse 20-something, I don't think he's got any of it on. Okay? All right. Let's see. We're going to look at the same three attributes of all three men. We're going to look at them as a leader. Okay? At the time Gideon was chosen, the Midianites afflicted Israel greatly. They were incredibly impoverished. They took all their food. They took all their crops. They took all their livestock. They had nothing. God chose to deliver Israel. He sent a prophet to foretell this delivery. And he sent an angel to inform Gideon. He says, you're the guy. You're going to lead him. Gideon was actually a pretty timid and hesitant fellow. When God came to him, he was actually threshing wheat in a wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. He was hiding. okay? And there's nothing wrong with hiding when there's a government that that's oppressive. But that's what he was doing. And he questioned. He said, God, why are these bad things happening? And he doubted. He says, you're really going to do it? And he said, I need a sign. And the angel came and he burned up that offering, scooped it up with fire. And he says, okay, I'm paying you at my attention now, God. Okay. We're going to find out that he needed more assurance and he asked for two more signs. This is really important. Gideon is a man wait till we get to chapter 8 Gideon is a man that needed to be told by a prophet by an angel and a dreamer he needed three signs okay he needs six encouragements that he was the man and God's going to give deliverance tuck that away for a second okay so he was the leader okay but in chapter 7 he dresses for victory that's cool in in chapter 7 Gideon tried God so God tried him and he trimmed down his army to 300 foot soldiers he got further assistance he heard it in, and God sent a man to dream and he shared that dream Gideon faced the enemies only with pitchers trumpets and lamps and the lord amen and the lord God chose the numbers he chose the weapons, he chose the battle plan, he chose the timing, and he chose the mop-up operation. And that was the victory. Gideon's got it all on now. He's got the helmet, he's got the breastplate. he's all girded up, his feet are shod. I mean, he's got the sword ready, it's all sharpened up. He's, he's, he's going into battle now, and chapter 7 is all about God. And he gets this great victory. And then he stops wearing the armor. Let's see it. I want to make this point. This is the, I can't tell you how many times I've read the account of Gideon, but this is the first time this truly jumped out at me. You know, when Gideon had those 32,000 and he whittled them down to 10,000, he whittled them down to 300, and then he was given the mop up operation and there's 300 soldiers chasing 12,000. Gideon's son was in the 300. Never knew that before. I read it, but I never knew, it, never hit me. We'll get that in a second. Which means, okay, this this is where I'm going from absolute scripture to speculation. It means that it seems like this son saw him need the signs. This son saw him whittle it down to 300. This son saw him go into battle. This son saw him put down the weapons and pick up pitchers, trumpets, and lamps. This son saw the great victory. But then he saw all these other things, too, that we're going to read about in a second. Okay? So let's go down and see what happened. Okay, Gideon put out a fleece when he went into battle. But notice this. This is in chapter 8. Stay with me, okay? God's talking to Gideon, and God says, Gideon, I want you to go into battle. And he says, are you sure, the guy? I'm just a no-account nobody from a no-account family with no-account money with a no-account education. You really want to pick me? And he puts out the fleece. But you know what? Gideon did not put out a fleece when it was time to tear the flesh of the people, the elders from Sukkoth. You see what happened was? Gideon was given a mop-up operation, and he was told to get the 12,000 that were fleeing. God took care of the 150,000, however many was. I want you to think about it this way. At this point in time, when God put out the fleece, he had 32,000 soldiers, and he was going after about 160,000, 70,000 soldiers. That's about 5 to 1, 6 to 1, and he was scared, okay? And here's the city of Succoth, seeing 300 soldiers chase 12,000. That's 40 to 1. And Gideon says, give me some food. And they say, "Uh uh-uh, they were afraid. Food was precious then, amen? And they said, no, you don't have the kings in your hand. We're not going to give you the food. You know what Gideon says? He says, when I come back, I'm going to get the briars and I'm going to tear your flesh. They needed some assurance. But so did Gideon. Gideon needed it too. My point is, When Gideon made this decision to tear the flesh off the elders of Succoth, I didn't see him put any fleece out. He made that decision all on his own. And then we go forward, and there was another city that he asked food of. And this time he actually cranked it up. He says, can you give me some food? This is from Penuel. And Gideon says, when I come back, I'm going to slay you. And he came back, knocked over the tower, and he slayed the men of the city. And then what he did, his son's name is Jether. He says, "I, Jether, I've got these two kings back. I want you to kill these two kings. And it says Jether wouldn't do it. Now, now I find this interesting. Jether went into battle. It was, it's, it's one thing to use your sword in competition or it's use your sword in a battle. But it's another one there's defenseless people. He says, slay them and execute them. And Jether wouldn't do it. I don't see Gideon put out a fleece to decide whether I should have my son slay. I don't see Gideon pull out a fleece when he says, okay, guys, everybody with your earrings, pass them into me because I want your gold. I don't see Gideon setting out a fleece when he says, okay, give me all your gold. I'm going to make an ephod. Right? I don't see Gideon put on a fleece When he had two dozen wives and he was getting wife number 25, he says, God, should I take this wife now on, right now or not? You you get where I'm coming from? He was good about putting out the fleece when it was this great big dangerous thing, but these other things, he just started going on automatic pilot, and he stopped talking to God. Okay? He didn't need an ephod. You know what he needed? He needed God's armor. He already had enough stuff to put on. He didn't need to put on that ephod Okay? But this is the key. Collateral damage was his children. You got it? Not from the battle, but from living a life without his armor on. Because what happened when Gideon died? His children went, they left. Amen? Spiritually speaking, Israel was no better off after Gideon than before him. Whoa, look in the mirror on that one, huh? Let me say that again. Spiritually speaking, Israel was no better off after Gideon than before him. What do we need? We need to put on our armor but we need to teach our children how to put the armor, how to use the armor, and we need to show them we wear it all the time. That's what we need to do. Okay? That was number one, Gideon. Let's go to Jephthah. Jephthah, we're going to look at the same three things. His leadership, suiting up, or his victory, and then we're going to look at his partial dress. The leader, Jephthah, this poor guy, he experienced social <clears throat> discrimination, racial discrimination, and religious discrimination. And the thing was, is all he knew was confrontation. His half-brother says, you can't have our inheritance. The Amorite says, you can't have our land. The Ephraimite says, you can't have the spoils. Jephthah responded in kind. Okay, He did not deal well with people. And you know what? I really don't blame him. He was treated terribly. Dad bailed on him, mom bailed on him, church elders bailed on him, everybody bailed on him. Okay? Jeff the only knew negotiated fellowship. His mother lived a life of negotiation. Vain men attached themselves to him just as things as going as well as things were going well. And the elders expelled him from the church until they needed him. And you know what? Jeff the responded in kind. Jeff the responded in kind. However, he was a man of faith. He's listed over there in Hebrews 11 too. Notice this about Jephthah in verse chapter 11, verse nine. He said this, if the Lord delivered Jephthah, new victory comes only if God blesses. Verse 11, Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord. He communed openly and all the time with God. God delivered Sion and Jephthah recognized God blessed him. He gave God all the credit for the victory. In 27, the Lord be judged. Jephthah readily stood before God's judgment. Verse 35, I opened my mouth to God and cannot go back. He did not break a very dumb covenant. That's right, Bethany, I said dumb from the pulpit, okay? It was foolish. And then the Lord delivered Jephthah because Jephthah recognized God blessed him in battle. That's Jephthah. He was a man of faith. He had a lot of that armor on. But there's times he acted when he didn't have the armor on. And that's what cost him. Okay, Suited, unsuited, or partially suited. The behavior which did not hinder Jephthah militarily. But it's not Christian behavior. My friends, this is my point. Jephthah went into battle with all the armor on. But when he lived the rest of his life, he didn't have it on. And you know who it cost? It cost his children. That poor daughter. You know, when I read Hebrews chapter 11, and I read Gideon, and I read Jephthah, and I read Samson, you know who I think belongs in Hebrews 11? Jephthah's daughter. You read what she said when she found out about that dumb oath that her dad made. What a woman of faith. But dad's knuckleheaded move cost her and it cost him his child and any grandchildren. So he responded in a place. He didn't put out any fleece either. God, his, his, his faith was weak there. He needed to negotiate with God. So my point is, is I understand Jephthah's background. I get it. And I feel sorry for him. But nevertheless, that behavior is costing him and his daughter. We need to put that armor of God on. Okay? Jephthah was not a peacemaker. Someone accused him of something. He says, Thou doest wrong. He was impulsive. He made that ill advised oath. He was self centered. His speech is loaded with the me monster. And he's unmerciful. He slew 42,000 Ephraimites that were retreating. I mean, they're not the bad guys. They're part of Israel. And he was just angry at them. How dare you accuse me? Jephthah's daughter was collateral damage, not from battle, but from a life apart from God, from not being fully suited up in his armor. Spiritually speaking, Israel was no better off after Jephthah than before him. My friends, that's my point. Would they say that about you? Would they say this church is no better after you than before you? Or before you than after? There's no difference. I can't tell. I hope that's not the case. Okay? We need to be training our children. And the best way to train them is to see their little eyeballs watching us put on all the armor and using that armor and not leaving off a piece or two here and there putting it all on all the time that's what they need to see you know when we do that in in a sense it's kind of like winning the battle but losing the war amen okay let's go to Samson now Samson's a guy I got to admit in reading his case I don't know if he ever got all the armor on what a mess this guy is. But the good thing was God put the spirit on him many times. Let's read about his case. Okay, now, now I've moved forward. I'm still in the book of Judges. I'm, most of this stuff that I'm, record, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling from is between chapters 13 and 17. I didn't quote the verse. Jephthah's coming from chapters 11 and 12. Gideon was 6 through 8. Okay, But now we're on Samson. Samson was God's. He picked him before he was even conceived. God chose Samson, and he judged Israel 20 years. Dad sought advice before conception. He says, Thy wife shall, and he gives them all the instruction there in chapter 13. You know, it's interesting. I think Samson's parents were always suited, they had the armor of God, and it looked like they had the armor of God on always. And because mom and dad had the armors of God, Samson was blessed. Isn't that something? That's a good reason for you to put the armor of God on. But then once you separated from mom and dad, he started going down. So mom and dad did their part. It's possible that the child says, no, I don't need that armor. And that's exactly what Samson did. You know what? I don't even think he got it all on. I really don't. Okay dressed for victory. Samson fully suited. Well, I don't know if he was fully suited, but I know the Spirit of the Lord came on him. And here's four occasions when he did come on. <clears throat> it's recorded in 1325, 1419, and 1514. And this is time where the Spirit of God came on, God, or, well, came on Gideon. Okay? And he was strong. He won those victories. But I think... Samson was partially suited. Each skirmish, Samson seemed to forget another piece of armor. Okay, in 154, he caught 300 foxes, took firebrands, put them tail to tail, and he set them loose. In 158, he smote the Philistines, hip and thigh, with a great slaughter. In 163, he took the doors of the city, to carry away and posted all. I mean, God's working in him mightily. But with every victory, every major conquest, guess what? he forgets another piece of armor because he's starting to think he's doing it and not God. We need... and, 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 And Gideon cost his children. Jephthah cost his child. Samson never had children. He was too full of himself. He didn't care about... He didn't have family. He didn't have wife. He didn't have children. He didn't have any of that kind of stuff. It was just all his pleasure. Okay. Okay. Suited, unsuited, or partially suited, Samson was unsuited. He had extraordinary strength with an extraordinary weakness. Okay. Samson went to Timnah, saw a Philistine woman, he said, get her for me. In sixteen one, he went to Gaza, he saw a harlot, and he went into her. In 16.4, it says he loved the woman, this is Delilah. In 16.6, she pressed him daily with her words, and he told her all his heart. In 1628, in that final prayer, Samson prayed that I may be avenged of the Philistine for my two eyes. This was not a God honoring request. This was a self vengeful revenge request. Amen? Okay. Gideon's children were killed. Jephthah's were anathematized, and Gideon had none. Spiritually speaking, Israel was no better off after Samson than before him. Hmm. Well, God, is that a problem? God would have us think generationally. I'm getting close to the end. I love the book of Joshua. One of the reasons why I love the book of Joshua from the very first chapter to the end of the chapter or getting at least halfway through, God is constantly using rocks. I mean, real rocks and stones. And He's setting up piles of rocks and stone monuments all over the countryside. And the reason why He calls them memorials memorial, the root word of memorial is to remember. So when dad or grandpa is walking down the road and kicking his little grandson in hand and they're walking, he says, Grandpa, what's that pile of rocks for? Let me tell you a story, grandson. That's what it's for. I love the book of Joshua for that. And there's piles of rocks all over. God is a generational thinking and he's generational thinking in his monuments. Let's look at a couple of them. And these rocks come in all different shapes and sizes. In chapter 4, 3 through 7, he took 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan. And he said, this is a sign for your children. It's a memorial forever. In chapter 6, 22 through 22 and 26 through 27, the rubble of Jericho was a monument. You're talking about the rubble of a falling city? Yeah, but you know what was neat about that? That city that caved in? There was one wall that didn't cave in. So you're walking by and you go, Grandpa, what's that? that's Jericho. Well, Grandpa, how come there's one wall that's still standing? Let me tell you about this woman named Rahab. Got it? And God said, don't you touch the rubble. Don't you rebuild on there. Leave this pile of rubbish right here. Why? It's a monument to teach your children. Joshua 7, there was a great heap of stones atop the charred remains of Achan and his family. And it says the pile of rocks are there until this day. In chapter 8, verse 28 through 29, there's a pile of rubber of Ai, a great heap up top the carcass of its king. Chapter 8, verse 30, there's an altar of whole stones, never been tooled, engraved with the word of God, to be read to all in all ways. You see God setting up these stones? You think, well, we don't have any in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, we do. They're not real rocks. And they're not for the purpose of worshiping. They're for the purpose of teaching our children. Chapter 10, verse 24 through 27, a great heath. This was at the pile of the mouth of a cave, a scepter for five kings. And it's there for very this day. You know, these pile of rocks is God is sovereign over the elements, a river. During the rainy season. He's sovereign over man's defenses. He's sovereign over municipalities. He's sovereign over alliances. He's sovereign over sin. That's what these stone monuments are for. Well, I wish I had some stone monuments. You know what? You got something better. You got the armor of God. And that's what you're supposed to be teaching your children, both verbally, but even more so in action. Just to show you, God is generational in his thinking. I think you've seen these verses before. Deuteronomy is four generations. He says, Moses taught thee. You're supposed to teach your sons who are supposed to teach their sons. That's four generations. Okay? Deuteronomy 6 and verse 2. Psalm 78, 3 and 4. Here's another four generations. Our fathers taught us and we teach our children who will teach another generation to come. Four generations. God is generational in his thinking. Joel 1 through f- 1, 2 through 3. There's five generations. Fathers taught their old, the old men. See that? The old men's fathers taught the old men who teach their children, who teach their children, who teach another generation. There's five there. Brother Dolph, that's Old Testament. Aha! 2 Timothy 2, 2. Preach the Word of God. Paul taught Timothy who are told to teach... Faithful men who are supposed to teach others also. Malachi 4.6, the last verse in the Old Testament. John the Baptist is to come to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and turn the heart of the children to the fathers. <clears throat> Ephesians 6.4, the one we just been in. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We are to teach our children. And we have memorials. We have uh, baptism, the ordinance of baptism. We have the ordinance of communion. Those are memorials too. But the ones we live day by day, we don't need a pile of rocks that we have to drive to in Washington, D.C. We've got the armor we put on daily that our children watch us put on. And we teach them how to use it. We show them how to use it. And we show them that we put it on all the time. Now, So when I think about this message, there's seven pieces of armor put on the whole armor of God. Now when you got up this morning, I'm guessing just the fact that you're here, you're not unsuited. I think you got at least a couple of these on. But, but who can just proudly, confidently say, I got all seven of them. I had all seven on yesterday and I'll have all seven on tomorrow. I know your scary looks, isn't it? I know. <laughs> and I'm the one that put it together all this week and I was doing that those scary looks to myself. Is my family better off after me than before me? Is this church better off after me than before me? I hope they see that. But I don't know. I know I've got some improvement. So, are we, sp- are we facing a spiritual battle? Amen. And I think we have all the equipment we need. Let's go back to Gideon for a second, though, okay? To wrap up, I want you to notice what God asked Gideon to do. God asked Gideon to put down his spears and his arrows and his bows and his sword. And he stood around the rim of a valley and he broke some pitchers. First thing we need to do is break ourselves. And then he said, Shine the light, let what's in you come up and out. Right? And then what did he do? trumpets, and then sound it out. Right? We've got everything we need. You know what our most effective tool is? We're not going after the enemy. We put all this on, and then what do we do? We hit our knees, and we pray. That's what this New Testament church has got to be doing. We've got to be doing it for ourselves. We've got to be doing it for our families, our marriages, this local congreg- congregation, our communities—we've got to be hitting our knees. We have got to be praying. We got kind of to put on whole armor of God. None of this your righteousness, none of this salvation wrought by you—that's that's inferior equipment. We we put all that on, but then we have to be hitting our knees and we have to be praying. May the Lord bless us to remember every piece of armor God bless you